Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, hello, Sunridge. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, My name is Danny, and I serve as the middle school pastor here. Today, we are going to be continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at Jesus's thoughts regarding prayer that are found at the heart of this Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches this. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like the pagans, for they will think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And this passage picks up right after our passage from last week. And if you were with us, you'll remember that Jesus taught on giving. Uh, he taught on how we should consider whether or not a person's intention was to be seen by others or to be idolized by others when we give. Uh, And here again, we are reminded of the importance of intent as it relates to prayer. Jesus provides a specific example of certain individuals who would stand out in the open and they would pray in a manner that caused others to look at them. And this section actually reminds me of one of my first memories regarding prayer. I was a middle school student at the time and my dad served on our usher team. And every Sunday, all of the ushers and the band and the tech team and any person who actually happened to be uh, in the service, in that room, uh, they would gather together in the middle of our worship center uh, and pray over the service. And one week I went to this pre-service meeting with my dad and one of the pastors prayed over the team and the service and all the people that would be gathered there that morning. And as he was praying, I noticed that every so often, uh, somebody in that circle of people would do that thing that Christians do when they love a good line in a prayer, that mm-hmm. And so this pastor was praying and every once in a while, it'd be like a mm-hmm. And then there was a series of time where it was like every single sentence that he said was mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, this guy is a great prayer. Like that's what prayer is. And that memory stuck with me. And so fast forward a few weeks, uh, I was actually given the chance to pray out loud over this team, me, a middle school student. I had never done this before. I never prayed out loud in front of adults before or led people in prayer really. So my brain was just starting to scramble. And it did that thing that the brain does when it, it like is in panic mode, where it's just grabbing certain bits of information. And the one piece it grabbed was the, mm-hmm. 
And so I thought, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna say a bunch of things to get all these adults to go, mm-hmm, to get that reaction. And so my middle school brain tried its best to string together this series of, of thoughts that were so powerful, so emotive that all these adults in this room would go like, yes, this kid gets it. This kid is close to God. This kid has great faith. The reality of the situation is that it was really just a 12-year-old rambling on and on and mispronouncing certain words and misusing those big Christianese words and concepts. And all of it was to make a point for me, to try and get myself recognized for my faith and my action and my ability to be a great prayer. That type of prayer that attempt at getting this reaction or that attempt to force this display of a person who was close to God, that is the type of posture that Jesus is actively warning his followers to avoid. Don't be like those people. He's saying that the people who stand on these street corners and shout loudly in public or who babble on and on and on and solely want people to recognize the depth of their own individual faith, he calls them hypocrites, play actors. They're just playing a part. They're pretending to have depth and substance, but the reality is there's no substance there. Instead, Jesus explains that his followers ought to take their faith somewhere private, somewhere remote. They shouldn't get caught up in human affection or attention, but they should go to a place where only their father will see them. And then they will know in their hearts that their intentions are pure. It's not about other people. It's not about being seen. It's not about being recognized. It is about communicating and establishing a relationship and connection to God. And it's this ability to be seen by God that transitions us to the first part of Jesus's model of prayer. This prayer opens with an acknowledgement of the accessibility of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. They're some of the most recognizable words in the New Testament, and they are packed full of meaning and depth. First, uh, the term for father here is most likely a translation of the Aramaic term Abba. And in English, this is most closely represented by our phrase, daddy. And Jesus here is expressing this close, intimate relationship with God. This prayer isn't directed at a God who is off in some other place, doing some other thing, concerned with other people. Rather, it is directed at a God who can be known deeply, who can be known closely, one who can be easily recognized and one who recognizes his own children. This God hears the words of his children and he listens and perhaps even chooses to respond. This God is accessible. The stand-in for the absolute perfect parent. And not only is this God accessible, but this God desires to be accessible, wants to be accessible, wants to be known and in relationship with creation. However, even though this God is accessible, even though the relationship is close and intimate, uh, this God is also transcendent, bigger than anything we could ever understand because it is our father in heaven, not our father at home, our father on the playground, our father at wherever, our father in heaven. God is here and we have access to God. But with this language, Jesus is also expressing the majesty of God, the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the creator of all things, the one who put 
forth everything that we know, put it all into motion. The one who sits on the throne in heaven, that God is close to us. That God is in relationship with us. That God is the perfect parent and wants to be known. That God is within reach and wants to hear our prayers. And the name of this God is to be hollow. It's to be holy, to be set apart, which takes us into the next section of this prayer, which is the charge to bring heaven to earth. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, the name that he is speaking of isn't just the name of God. It isn't just Elohim or Yahweh or Adonai. Names at this point in history carried significant weight. They included the fullness of a person's personality the fullness of their authority, the fullness of their character. And so Jesus is saying here that everything that God stands for, everything that God represents ought to be treated as holy and it ought to be treated with honor. And so here Jesus is inviting his followers, inviting his disciples, inviting the people who will come after them to really consider the name, uh, consider this point. Is the name of God holy? And you can read this section and kind of pick up on a few things. You can read and imply that if Jesus is saying this here, hallowed be your name, if he's using these words in this prayer, then perhaps at this time, the name of God isn't remaining holy. Because Jesus is being so explicit here, we can take a look and, and kind of see that the reality of the situation isn't this ideal thing. It's not what's happening. It's not what's going on. Perhaps the religious culture at this time has kind of co-opted the name of God and is somehow misappropriating its use. That perhaps the systems that have been set in place no longer represent the same values or the same principles that God might represent. Uh, for us, we kind of shift that question and think, are Christians now doing a good job representing the Father's name? Are we doing a good job representing that name, representing that authority, representing that character in the world? Are we actually standing up for the things that God would stand up for? You don't have to dig through too far into history books to recognize that Christians haven't always gotten it right. There are Christians who claim to be the closest to God and all they did was wield the name of God to protect their own power and to protect their own privilege. Whether it was the way that passages of scripture were leveraged to endorse things like slavery or the way that the first European settlers forcibly converted or killed indigenous people in the name of Jesus Christ, wrestling with this question should make us really uncomfortable. And while there are multiple accounts of Christians getting it wrong throughout the ages, we need to look at ourselves and wonder if our current Western evangelical Christian culture is doing any better. Are we, as citizens of the United States of America, a nation founded on top of Christian ideals, are we doing any better at serving the poor, at serving the alien, the immigrant? Are we doing any better at caring for the marginalized or practicing justice or mercy or forgiveness? Are we doing a good job of turning the other cheek? Are we living our lives in a way that keeps the Father's name holy? Or do we find ourselves in a culture that is absolutely okay with looking the other way simply because we benefit 
from the end result. A culture that simply stamps the image of Jesus onto everything rather than go through the work of being molded and crafted into the image of Jesus. One that is simply playing a role, playing holy. And we have to consider this question because Jesus prays that God's kingdom will come to earth. That the things that are already occurring in heaven will happen simultaneously on earth. Uh, And the mind of Jesus in this passage, heaven and earth are these overlapping spaces. There's this thin membrane keeping the two separate, but they kind of stack on top of each other. Things are happening at the same time. And this section of prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an invitation for God to simply take over, to invade the space so that every single day, earth here, this place that we call home, looks a little bit more like heaven. But if we find ourselves having a a difficult time living in a way that keeps the Father's name holy, if we find ourselves living, serving, promoting a culture that would rather remain comfortable than see justice and mercy roll like a river, if we would rather stick to the status quo and just keep trudging on, then we are going to be in direct opposition of this request of Jesus. We will be in direct opposition of the mission of God's kingdom rather than ushering in God's goodness and newness and the kingdom life we'd find ourselves positioned in the breach, pushing back against it, saying, not not yet. This is still good for me, not yet. And so in order to align ourselves with this mission and this challenge, we have to really consider our own motivation, our own intent once again. We have to consider what it looks like, what it means for us to be actually following after God and why we are choosing to do it. We have to go all the way back to that first point. Are we doing it just because we can? Are we doing it because it's just been embedded in our minds since we were children? Are we coming here on Sunday mornings to this place, whether it's online or or in-person gatherings, are we doing that just to flex some religious freedom muscle or do we genuinely care about seeing God reign on and over this earth? Do we want that deep, intimate relationship with God? Do we want to go through the challenge of being shaped and pressed and changed and reformed into the image of the Son of God? Have we postured ourselves in a way that is in tune with God's heart for the world? Because if we haven't done that work, if we haven't started that process, if our intentions are poor, then what comes next in Jesus's prayer is going to be extremely difficult for us. You see, this first half of the prayer, it's all worship. It's all exaltation. It's all a reminder that there is a higher body and a higher authority that we all submit ourselves to as an act of love. Jesus reminds us when it comes to prayer that we should root ourselves in worship. We should find our foundation in worship and in praise. And then Jesus turns. He transitions our hearts towards requests. We profess our love for God and then Jesus turns our hearts, but he doesn't turn it to a place that we might think he would. He turns our hearts towards others. David Bentley Hart 
uh, has a personal translation of the New Testament. He translates the second half of Jesus's prayer as this. Give to us today bread for the day ahead. Excuse us our debts just as we have excused our debtors and do not bring us to trial, but rescue us from him who is wicked. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory unto the ages. And what you might notice right away in this translation is is the use of us, give us, excuse us, do not bring us to trial, rescue us. And here Jesus is reminding us of the communal component of Christianity. What follows is a reminder that this prayer, it isn't just for individual needs, but for those of communities. For many of us, we've made our faith extremely individual. We make a personal choice to follow Jesus, personal commitment to do things his way. We invite Jesus into our individual hearts. Our faith practices are often carried out in the early mornings by ourselves or the late evenings by ourselves. But Jesus here is calling us to remember faith is best practiced in community. Faith is best uh, practiced when it's understood to be a part of the life of everyone. Faith that is invested in God's kingdom and in bringing heaven to earth considers the needs of the people around us. What is good for the community is good for us as individuals. Our ability to move the kingdom of God forward is directly connected to our ability to see other people. And so Jesus reminds us when you pray, don't make it all about you. Don't make it about just your needs as a person and what you need right now in this moment, whether it's a new stimulus check or a new car or a new job or just new opportunities, a new house, whatever it is. Don't make it just about you and what you need, but make it about your people, your church. Consider the global church. Consider your neighbors. Consider your friends. Look outward into your community because it is about us together finding and following Jesus. Jesus then makes a transition. He talks about this idea of daily bread. And it's language uh, meant to recall this image of the way that Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness after they had been freed from slavery. In Exodus 16, when they were hungry, tired, and thirsty, God brought them food and water and challenged them to remember that each day is a gift. And this image, this this memory, this recollection, it brings up the question of provision. Are we going to be people who daily depend upon God for what is coming next? Are we going to fix our eyes on God or allow those things that constantly compete for our attention to win? This part of Jesus's prayer reminds us that none of what we have is the result of our own work. We've participated in the development of what we had. We've helped build up these things, but all of it is a product of the grace that God has bestowed upon each and every single one of us. And so because nothing is ours, because we didn't build it ourselves, we turn our loyalty to God. We look to God to provide for us because we remember God has always been faithful to us. God has always provided for us. When all around was dry desert, when things looked hopeless, when when there was no food, no water, when they were just wandering in the desert, lost. Even then, 
God stepped in and found a way to provide and to protect. And so each day we have the opportunity to wake up new and to wake up refreshed and to consider the relationship with God as we look to him to provide for us. And then Jesus continues. He takes a turn that's unexpected once again. And he discusses the capacity for us to forgive. Jesus calls his followers to consider the depth of their own forgiveness and then to reevaluate their own capacity to forgive others. This concept is so important to Jesus that he actually tacks on an addendum at the end of the prayer in verses 14 and 15. They read this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Jesus here is expanding on his teaching in Matthew 5 regarding an eye for an eye. When someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Uh, But it isn't just about turning the other cheek or going the extra mile. He tacks on that it's do those things and then forgive. Forgive people attack you. Forgive people who sin against you. He's saying absorb whatever it is that is happening in front of you and then forgive and then forgive and then keep forgiving and keep forgiving. He's saying name the wrong that happened. Name the harm that has occurred. Name the hurt and then move forward. Uh, Keep moving forward and and don't, don't seek vengeance. Don't seek repayment. Jesus wants his followers to work to a place where their hearts are ready to soften towards people who've harmed them, people who have sinned against them, people who have violated boundaries and caused harm. And this isn't the same thing as reconciliation. He's not saying restore the relationship, be best friends again, uh, do everything so that things were like how they used to be. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's just saying, learn to forgive, learn to soften your heart, learn to move your heart towards that person. Because if someone is repeatedly crossing boundaries, if someone is repeatedly harming you, then it's time to address that. It's time to call that out, to name it, and then establish new boundaries. Even if that means just loving that person from a distance, saying, I I can't do this anymore. Jesus is saying to consider our capacity to forgive. Forgive us as we have been forgiven. And there's no deadline here. Jesus doesn't say uh, to do it by next week or next month or next decade. There's no hard limit for, for how long you have to learn how to forgive. The goal is to just expand your own limitation, to begin to learn how to forgive others in the same way that Jesus chose to forgive, even when he was dying on the cross. Keep forgiving, keep growing. And then the final section of Jesus's prayer covers the need for deliverance. Jesus turns to this one last point in his prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus is reminding his followers here that the Christian life isn't easy. Following God isn't easy. There are going to be challenges. There are going to be temptations, things that are fighting for your attention, for your loyalty, for your affection. There are going to be paths that can be taken that will lead you way off course. 
and pull your focus from the God who provides. But in every opposition, just as God was with Jesus in every test in the wilderness, God will also be with us. In the desert, when there is nothing to eat, God will deliver us. When our situation in life is overwhelming, God will deliver us. God will walk with us through trials. And God will always, always, always work to deliver us. So what then do we do with this information? We worship God. We remember others in our community. We participate in the kingdom. We rely on God to carry us through every circumstance. Or to simplify it even further, in the words of Jesus himself, we choose to love God and to love our neighbor. Jesus provides for us a framework for talking to God. It isn't one centered on our own wants or our own desires. It isn't one that is concerned with exactly what we need to do in any particular moment. Instead, Jesus shows us how prayer is centered around who God is, who God is in our life, who God is in this world and all of creation. And not only that, but how we can relate to others. We move from worship into contemplation, into the reminder that God has been and always will be loyal to us and will always deliver us. This prayer that has been repeated over and over for thousands of years still maintains some power for us today. It still reminds us that we are participants in God's world, that we have the privilege of existing as representatives, as ambassadors for God's goodness here on earth. And so these words draw us further and further into a life that shapes us to become more like God's son, Jesus. These words, as ancient as they are, are filled with the transformative power of God's spirit. They will change you. They will shape you. They will help you reorient yourself towards a God who is bigger than you ever thought. But only if you let them. That's the challenge, right? Only if you let them, only if we let them. If we mean them as much when we are locked in the closet, whispering prayers that will go unseen and unheard by the world as we would if we were gathered in a circle of our peers. If our heart and our intent is there, if we work to understand how accessible and loving and available God is, if we truly wish to participate in the development of God's kingdom here on earth, if we desire all of those things, if we want all of those things, and these words are just the beginning for us. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for uh, the gift of your son and this model that he has left for us that moves us from a place of worship to a place where we consider what our neighbors need, what our community needs, what our church needs. And then we remember who you are and the way that you deliver us, the way that you have forgiven us, the way that we have the power to forgive others. God, I pray over these words that they shape us, that they change us, they chip away at the parts of us that don't look a whole lot like you until we are formed into the image of your son. 
Thank you again for who you are and all that you've done with us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. It's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.